And uh, I don't know about you, but, but tra- the thing about travel, you know, this whole series we're doing, we're kind of thinking about what are the te- themes of the summer. So last week, looked at seasons. Today, we're going to look at time. We're going to look at rest. We're going to look at family. We're going to look at all these different parts of the summer. One of the most precious, one of the most things we become most conscious of in summertime is time. It's why we call it summer time. And most of us start thinking about summer time in January, when we're scrolling the internet looking for cheap deals and flights and accommodations, and where's the best country, and already that was stressful, but now living post-COVID, right, with all the disasters happening in airports, I got in on Friday morning from the USA and I spent an hour and a half waiting for my bag that I could see on the app was in the airport. It was like if this was like a Pokemon game, but looking for my bag, you know what I'm saying? I go to the counter, I'm like, the lady, like, she's like, oh, well, fill out this form. I said, no, the bag is here. And she goes, oh, it is here. I said, I know it's here. And so we're walking around Terminal 2 looking for my bag as if I dropped my wallet or something. Eventually she found it. I told her two things. Number one, I don't envy your job and keep on rocking the free world with a smile. She laughed at that and I walked off. That was after 30 hours of travel. And it's so funny because when I was there, I was standing in line waiting for this kind lady to help me find my bag. And I was, you know, just trying to kill time scrolling, you know, internet scrolling through Instagram. And I was getting more and more frustrated. I was like, you know, we, we lose so much time scrolling, don't we? I mean, we can sit on a couch and an hour goes by and what have we done? Nothing. But watch people fall off things and dogs do funny things and people make interesting things. An hour goes by, but why is it now as I'm standing in line, I just, I feel so frustrated like I'm wasting time. And this thought kind of dawned on me that only I have the right to waste my time. If I I choose to scroll, waste my time, that's my right. But when I'm being made to waste, when someone's wasting my time because I'm enforced with it because someone didn't do their job, it's so frustrating. Nothing frustrates us more, especially on summertime, than wasting time. Especially if you paid for something, maybe it's accommodation, maybe it's you go on a trip somewhere to a water park, you're waiting in line. We just become so conscious of time. I, like you, I spent most of the winter thinking about summer holidays, planning summer holidays, booking summer holidays. Some of you know the story, but uh, it came to the crunch about a month ago when we realized that our youngest son, Jonathan, who's just a year old, probably seen him run around here, his passport wasn't, wasn't going to arrive on time. And we tried our best, you know, did everything we could in our power to try to get that passport on time to go away, but it didn't come. Which meant that last week I had to jump on a plane, fly all the way to Hawaii, sounds amazing, by myself for six days, be part of a conference, fly all the way back here today. On Tuesday, I'm flying all the way back to the West Coast with my three oldest sons, or my wife and son stay behind waiting for a passport, and hopefully then they'll fly over the week after and join us in Louisiana. And there's lots of frustrations with that, like expectation, changing plans, having to tell people who, you know, you're letting them down because it's out of your control. But perhaps the most infuriating thing is the loss of time. I mean, time is important all the time, but there's something about summertime that makes time, makes the awareness of time or the sense of time or the value of time seem all that more precious. And there's this interesting conundrum, this interesting thing as you think about the tension of time. The one thing about time we can all agree on is we all want more time. We all want more of it, but yet there never seems to be enough time. And time is always moving. Time waits 
for no one. Forbes magazine said recently that procrastination, poor prioritizing, worry, social media, and general distractions lead us to waste time. What happens when you've spent time wasting time? Because there's a difference. We all spend time. We can spend time investing time, or we can spend time wasting time. How we know the difference, if we don't know in the moment, is when we look back on the time we've spent, if we've wasted it, it's usually characterized by a sense of regret. I wish I had done more with the time that was given to me. And most of us, if we're not careful, we make so many poor decisions about life in the present, the time in general, that we tend to look back mourning things, wishing they were different, instead of looking ahead and making things different. See, many people ask me when they heard the news about the debacle of our summer holidays, like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's so terrible, and you must feel awful, and da-da-da. I'm like, yeah, of course it sucks. I mean, come on. Who doesn't like to have their summer holiday cancelled? But at the same time, you know, all is not lost. We're going to get to spend some time together. It is a privilege to get on a plane and go anywhere, right? It's a privilege to be above ground sucking air, a.k.a. life. I mean... Well, I think sometimes the problem with so many of us is that we take so much for granted that it creates an entitlement mentality. Like we're entitled to do things. And you, you live a while and you get around people and you hear some stories of people suffering and losing and you, you see different parts of the world where so many human beings struggle. And all of a sudden you begin to realize that even when things don't accord, go according to time, according to plan, this time still we can be grateful and we are privileged. Why? Because time is a gift. Time is a gift, right? There's no guarantees. Who knows how much time we have? The minute you were born and welcomed into this world, hopefully joyously, by great parents, it's almost like that egg timer was turned. And none of us know how much sand is in the upper egg glass. What we do know is time is ticking. There's no guarantees for what the future holds for any of us. And if we fall into the trap the Western trap of feeling entitled because we deserve, because somehow we believe we're special or better than other human beings in lesser fortunate parts of the world. That entitlement can lead to frustration, which if we don't deal with, can lead to depression. You see, there's something about, something about being a human being and understanding that nothing we're given in life is owed. It's a gift. It's a gift that we were born in Ireland and not in some war, war-torn part of the world. You didn't choose that. That wasn't your choice. It's a gift that maybe your parents left a country of origin that was characterized by those things and came here to give you a better opportunity at life. The fact that you're healthy, the fact that you can earn a living, the fact that you can buy things, the fact that so many of you are going to have ice cream after church, you weren't even thinking about but now you are to see the song. <clears throat> It's a gift. Time is a gift. And time, if you're, if you're not a Christ follower, you can at least agree with the principle. But if you're a Christ follower, we believe time is specifically a gift from God. It's a, it's a gift. It's a privilege to be alive. And with that gift comes intentionality. God gave us time on purpose. Because time has a purpose. Your time on the earth has a purpose. And... We have, you know, we think about our, you know, our calendar, and our calendar is characterized by 12 months, come on, 52 weeks, uh, seven days in a week. You break it down even further, we're told we have 600 
604,800 seconds in a week. We have 100,080 minutes in a, 1,008 minutes a week and 168 hours in a week. And just like that, week by week by week by week, our time goes by. That's, that's not a bad thing. That's an inevitable thing. The question we're asking today is how do we partner? How do we, how do we acknowledge? How do we take charge? How do we invest our time and spend it wisely so when we look back, we're not filled with regrets, but we're filled with gratitude? Because as we're going to see in today's text, there is no guarantees for tomorrow. We're all planning things and living as if tomorrow is a guarantee. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. So the question we're asking is, how do we use time wisely? How do we move away? How can we grow? How can we, how can we de- develop this ability, whether we're a Christ follower or not? How can we get better at not wasting time and using time wisely? And as always, we're going to turn to God's Word for some help. We're going to turn specifically to the book of James, chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 13 to 17. James, this incredible uh, first century church leader, wrote this letter to a bunch of churches just like ours scattered in the world at the time. And he was really trying to encourage the church, not only, not only encourage, but also challenge them. Because how many know encouragement makes us feel better, but challenge makes us better? And you know, there's times we need to be encouraged, like, hey, I encourage you to do a great job. You're a great person. You look great. You never da da da. We need that. But if we only ever get encouragement and no challenge, well, then we feel great, but we're good at nothing. And if all we ever get is challenge, we get good at things, but we feel terrible. So somewhere in the, in the balance things, we need both. We need to be encouraged, but we also need to be challenged. And James does a masterful job to hold to the book, encouraging and challenging. And specifically in chapter 4, if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible app, you can open it. The actual heading that the scholars have put in there is something like submitting to God or life submitted to God. What the, what the, what the scholars have kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, what would you call it, uh, decided is that the, the general theme of James chapter 4 is James is trying to explain to the church the, the necessity, the importance, the power, the benefit, however you want to describe it, the blessing of living a life in light of a God who loves us. Specifically in chapter 4, living in light of God's presence, God's plan, and God's purpose. See, if your time is your own, and your time is leading nowhere, and your time has no purpose, well then it's up to you to do whatever the heck you want with your time. But you must play by your own rules. If you're not a Christ follower, you're someone who's skeptical, or maybe atheistic, and you're thinking, well, I'm not really believing in anything. Well, then you have to accept the fact that when time does not go according to your plan, or when time is taken away from you, you have no right to cry otherwise. Why? Because there's no guarantees. Because your time is your time. And if it's all about you, it's up to you and your power to guarantee that time. But if we can stop for a second and maybe even just imagine the fact that maybe God put us on the earth. Yes, wooden egg timer. Yes, it's limited. But with a purpose. And our time has a purpose. And our seasons, as we learned last week, have a purpose. And we start asking a different set of questions. Maybe not only will we begin to invest our time wisely, but maybe this is the key to looking back, not with regret, but with gratitude. Living in light of God's presence, plan, and purpose. So verse 13, here's what James says. says, Now listen, you who say... 
Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, and carry on business and make money. Why do you, in verse 14, he says, why do you, why he says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? Here's a great question. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. And he says, all such boasting is evil. And he closes verse 17 with this. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, here's a big heavy word, it is sin for them. What's he saying? He's saying when we plan without the presence of God, we waste so much time. He's not saying, he's not saying that, pl- that, that, that planning is bad. He's not saying making money is bad. He's not saying celebrating things is bad. He's not saying anything's bad. He's saying when we plan and celebrate and live for ourselves, of ourselves, as if it was all about ourselves, not only is that not God's plan for us, but essentially that track, that track of, track of living solo, that track of, as Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way, leads you down a lonely road that so often is characterized by the wastage of time and the feeling of regret. Planning, we talk, we talk about planning all the time. Planning is a good thing, but when we live our lives as if God was not interested, as if God didn't have power, as if God wasn't present, as if God didn't have a plan, then we have to prepare ourselves to live in the consequences of that choice. And again, you might be here and you are a Christ follower and you do, you do believe and you, you would say, no, I, I trust God and da, da, da. But you can still choose as a Christ follower to not follow Christ. You can still choose to plan your future and make your choice as if God isn't God. And again, God is so, I don't know how he does this because it's so merciful. God, being the good father that he is, allows us to make those choices. He warns us and he woos us and he tries to help us. But ultimately, if we make the choice to live that way, then we must live with the consequences. And I think what James is saying is that, hey, he's not giving out. He's not, he's not beating down on people. He's saying it from the heart of a pastor. Listen, I want more for you. God wants more for you. God, I believe, wants you to steward your time, to use your time to the best and utmost of your ability. Time with your wife or husband, time with your kids, time in your career, time in, in, in your community of friends, time in the world because time is not, has no guarantees. God wants us to use the gift of time wisely. Isn't that what we, what we feel when we give people good things? When it's someone's birthday, so a life event of someone you care about, when you go to purchase a gift for them, you're trying to think two things. One, what gift can I purchase within my budget that best expresses how I feel about this person, right? I want them to feel like I care. Like any idiot can walk in and pick up something off a shelf without even thinking, but the other person will know you're an idiot and you weren't thinking. But a good gift is usually a gift that conveys thought. Not always value, but thought. Because to be thought of by someone, to be, to be, to be valued by someone is one of the highest privileges that we can experience as humans in community. 
That's the first thing. The second thing that we do when we buy a gift is we try to figure out how can this help them? You know, is this going to be something that just helps them have fun? Will it give them a laugh? Will it, is it practical? Is it, to, is it a tool? I mean, what, how, how can I convey how I feel, but also how can it be helpful? This idea of gift giving originates with God. He wants us to know in the gifts that he has given us, the gift of life, the gift of health, because it's a, it's a gift, right? The gift of intellect, the gift of community, the gift of creativity, the gift of intimacy. He wants us to know in all these things how he cares about us. And perhaps the most profound gift he ever gave was the gift of his only son. Because it says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates, he proves, he outlines, he makes clear his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Not when we're in church, not when we're, you know, on our best behavior. When we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. See, God is a gift-giving God. And in the same way he gives general gifts and specific gifts of the gift of salvation, he gives us the gift of time. And he wants us like we want, we give gifts away. He wants us to enjoy it and to use it to its maximum potential. I think James gets this, and he wants the church to see it, but he's, 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 he's aware, or he's witnessed, as you and I have, how people tend to waste so much time. And so in those few verses, we see three specific ways, three ways that we can waste time, three ways, three ruts that we can fall into, three mistakes that we can make if we don't pay attention that ends up wasting time. The first one, the first way we waste time is through presumption. Say presumption. 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 Now James opened up in verse 13 with this analogy of a Jewish merchant. Remember what he said? He said, suppose you know, one of you says, I'm going to go off to this city and spend a year, right, <clears throat> growing my business and making money. Now again, there's nothing wrong with having a plan. There's nothing wrong with growing a business. And there's certainly nothing wrong with making money right? The problem is, is the motive in all those things. This person in his presumption believed that he could guarantee his future. There was no sense of gratitude. There was no sense of humility. There was no sense of recognizing or acknowledging God over life. And of course, in context, it was a Jewish person. Therefore, by definition, they were someone who was supposed to be following God. See, it's easy to say, oh, James is referring to someone who had no faith. No, In this particular analogy, James is referring to someone like you and me who maybe is a Christ follower who says we believe, but we plan and live as if we don't. And there's a warning. The warning is, be careful with your presumptions. Because when we are too certain about tomorrow, we become too careless about today. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no certainty about tomorrow. All we can be sure of is this moment right now. You're here. You're alive, you're awake, hopefully, and you're present. This is what we can be certain about. What comes next is a mystery. And all you have to do is live for a minute and be in the world and have loved and lost someone to know the real weight of what this means. There are no guarantees for tomorrow. Perhaps you, like me, have had friends and family members who dreamed and believed and planned, and are no more. And hopefully you, like me, have many stories where those people lived in gratitude and lived well and didn't live selfishly and live in regret. Because when those difficult 
funerals to go to, to, to as, as a minister, uh, to, to have, is the one where the person lived selfishly. It's very hard to say good things about a bad person. And you know it, because even if you don't know the person, the way things are said, there's no meaning. There's no connection. It's like, oh, John. Asher, John was a fine fella. Asher, look. Asher, John. I mean, your whole life to Asher, John? Are you joking me? Like, is that all the people who love you and are connected to you will say because they don't want to say mean things because you're dead? They don't want to say the truth out of disrespect, so they say, Asher, John. Listen, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an Asher, Jamie. Right? I want to be someone that when my time comes, people, I meant something to people. More, most importantly, I meant something to the people that mean most to me. That isn't an accident. That isn't on them. That's on me to live in the present. It's taking charge in the present of your marriage, of your fathering and mothering, of, with your friends, of your faith. It's living in the present that guarantees how you'll be spoke of in the future. You see, when we presume too much about today, we miss the present today. I've said this a thousand times, and forgive me because I'm going to say it again. It's like in the wise words of Kung Fu Panda. It's called the present because it's a gift. Don't argue Kung Fu Panda. Let me tell you something. There's wisdom in that movie. It's called the present because it's a gift. You see, in, in the analogy, the Jewish businessman's plan was based on his presumption. He presumed a bunch of things. He presumed that life would continue. He presumed that he would be healthy. He presumed that the, the socioeconomic climate of his day would allow his business to prosper. He presumed that by going to his other city and trading, buying and selling, that he would make more money. There are so many presumptions in his plan and no acknowledgement for the fact that these things that we hope for, these things that we dream for, can only be guaranteed in God. You see, James is inferring, this is an idea we find right throughout Scripture, idea we find particularly in the book of Proverbs, the book of wise sayings in the Old Testament, that foolish people presume where wise people pray. Foolish people presume where wise people pray. There's no guarantees for tomorrow, but we hope, right? And we plan, right? And we dream, right? But the difference between a wise and foolish person is a wise person presents their plans, their dreams, their endeavors, their projects to God, knowing that the only person that can ultimately decide and determine what are the things that we inspire, aspire or endeavor to have or to accomplish can be done through his power and ability. You see, we're talking right now as a church, we want to plant another church Next March, have you noticed? But March 2023, we are planting Lighthouse Number 3 in the great town of the Dock County Loud. In fact, Patrick and Michelle, who are both here in the platform, this is their last month with us. They're going to go back to the States for a while, and they're part of the launch team going to launch our new church. I think it's amazing. That's an amazing couple. Come on, show love and appreciation. Are willing to step out again and help start another church. So we're busy planning or preparing and we're fundraising and all these things to see a church like this 
started in a town like that. And we really hope, really believe this is what God wants. The difference between our planning and say foolish planning is we are not assuming, we're not assuming anything. We're praying, we're hoping, we're, we're as the expression goes, we're stepping out in faith. Because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. It was St. Augustine, the, one of the ch- original church fathers who said, he used this analogy, he said, two criminals were crucified with Christ. One was saved, don't despair. The other was not, do not presume. What's he saying? He's, be, he's, you know, he's, he's drawing a very clever analogy. He's saying, even in Christ's crucifixion, we see this principle at work, that there were two thieves, two criminals, either side of Jesus. And because one in that moment, even though he hadn't lived a single day of good moral living, but just in that, in his dying moments, put his trust in Jesus and God forgave him and set him free and welcomed him into paradise. As Jesus said, hey, we shouldn't despair. There's hope for all of us. If you're here and you're not a Christ follower, not a person of faith, you haven't lived in a way that you think is morally acceptable and you think that maybe God will reject you, Jesus came to pay the price for your sin so you can be saved and set free. We should not despair. But at the same time, one person clapped. I'll say it again. Jesus came to save and set you free. It's worth celebrating. Jesus deserves more than one hand clap, right? At the same time, though, he says, the other was not. And so we shouldn't presume at the end of the day, oh, you know, kind of like all dogs go to heaven. Remember that movie? Like, we all just, like, magically make it there. No, we don't. Watch this. God respects your ability to choose too much to allow you the choice not to love and follow him and have you end up loving and follow him anyway. If God really gave you the ability to choose, then you must choose to the point where you choose the consequences of your choice. God respects your autonomy too much to somehow flip it over at the end and all of a sudden, surprise, you're in heaven anyway. There's hope, but there's also a warning we should not presume. Here's my question to you today. What presumptions about your life are causing you to waste time right now? Think about this for a second. What are you presuming? As you think about your life, your future, what do you, what do you, like, what, what, and again, James ties in this idea of arrogance we're going into next. Like, what, what is causing you to plan and live with such certainty when there's no guarantees you will even be alive next week? What presumptions about tomorrow are causing you to miss out on today? So the first way to waste time is presumption. Second way we waste time is pride. And pride, in many ways, drives presumption. James asked this chilling question. He says, what is your life? I want to encourage you to go find a beautiful place like Keem Beach in Ackle Island, County Mayo, and go sit there, or Inch Beach, where inches a mile, as the man says, in County Kerry. Go find some beautiful place. Don't go to Kalini. It's not beautiful. Go find a beautiful place, okay, the mountains, the lake, river, and sit there and ask yourself the question, what is my life? Because too many of us spend too much time trying to afford our life, working for our life. Come on, we're in cars commuting, we're in offices working, we're, we're doing so much to have life that we're missing out on the core question, what is your life? Like, who are you? Pride, we see. Pride causes us to overestimate 
our ability in the short term and to underestimate God's ability in the long term. See, pride, pride pulls us into this trap of having this very short, how do you call it, this very kind of short-sighted vision of things. We think in weeks and months and not in years and decades. You see, presumption is like, hey, I don't have to worry about years and decades because they'll take care of themselves because you know what, it'll all be good. Prayer is, well, there's no guarantee, but I trust there'll be years and decades. And I'm sowing seeds today in the present, seeds of humility, seeds of generosity, seeds of servanthood, so that when the years and decades come, there's something to reap. If you're a Christ follower, hey, think about your life, not in, not in months and years, but in years and decades. One of the greatest bits of advice I was ever given when I started out in ministry, I don't know if you know this, but I started in ministry as a 20-year-old dude, okay? So I, didn't even, I, I couldn't even shave, and somehow I was supposed to offer spiritual advice to people. It was crazy. And I was, you know, that was a challenge to lead people, to, to pastor people who are sometimes twice, three times your age. And I remember this wise uh, man of God giving me some advice. And, hey, he said, remember, young people always overestimate what they can achieve in the short term and underestimate what they can achieve in a lifetime. I'll say it again if you're a young person, listen up, and you can define what young means for you. If you're a young person, we tend to underestimate, we tend to overestimate what we can achieve in the short term, but underestimate what we can achieve in a lifetime. What was the point? He was trying to get me to see, not in terms of weeks and months and years, he was trying to get me to look at the world through the lens of decades, of a life. What could happen to this church called Lighthouse if I gave the rest of my life to it? Not three years or five years or ten years. What happens if I give the rest of my eggs for however long that sand keeps dropping, that time will be spent giving and serving and loving and praying and leading this thing called Lighthouse Church. It changed my world. Nothing changed in my world, but everything changed world because I was changed. Because all of a sudden my perspective changed from a short-term perspective to a long-term perspective in light of God's power, presence, and plan. See, pride is always, always because pride is manifest in boasting. And when James said that, you know, this kind of boasting is arrogant, that word in Greek is the word alazonea. And literally that word alazonea is a picture. It's a picture of a spinster. You know, as we see in the movies, these guys who, who go around selling things and are promising things and, the, and they sell a product and, of course, they get in their car and drive away and the product doesn't work. It's this idea of being deceived, a con artist, someone who promises so much but can deliver nothing. Our pride in God's eyes is like that. We talk a big game. We talk a really big game. But in comparison to the God of, the, of eternity... God of the universe, a God who's outside time, who is all-powerful and all-knowing. Our talk is like a spinster selling a product when we know we can't back it up. See, pride is a false belief that because we feel special, that we deserve something special. I think one of the greatest travesties, if I use that word, in the Western world is that we grew up, especially those of us who are millennials, we grew up being told we're special. You're so special. Oh, you're amazing. You're so special. Newsflash, no, you're not. You are not special. You are just like the other 7 billion people that call planet Earth home. 
And you should give thanks, even if you're not a Christian wrestler, you should give thanks that you weren't born in some slum in India or some war-torn part of Africa or some communist country, but you were born in a land of freedom and democracy where things like education are things you can complain about. Because in most countries, I mean, I've heard stories over the years of people, the, the lengths they would go to the suffering of their parents just to get them some education. And we grew up in our world popularizing songs and movies, complaining. But the fact that we have to have an education. We leave this church today and we all break up and go to ways. And one of the first things on our mind, besides the ice cream that I mentioned, will be dinner. Where do you go to eat? Oh my goodness. Woe is us. There's like Starbucks and Burger King and KFC and McDonald's and Nando's and Milano's and Eddie Robber Pockets. And then there's TGI Fridays and then there's Captain America's and Wagamama's and there's Wow Burger, Bunsen Burger, there's Boojum, there's Masashi, there's Dunkin' Donuts. What else is there out there? Don't act like you haven't had them all. You have. And then after you make your choice, there's Krispy Kreme donuts. I mean, none of us are thinking about, will I have time to go hunting? Darling, you collect the firewood. I should go fetch you some game. Like, we're going to complain about, oh man, I don't know what to eat. And then we get to these places and we walk up to the counter and we hand over our money and we wait five minutes And boom, there's a fully prepared meal sitting in front of us, which we'll probably complain about. And it's like, man, if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of thinking this is normal. Listen to me. In light of all human history and most human beings right now living the earth, that is not normal. We are privileged. We are fortunate. We are blessed. I'm not saying we should feel guilty, but I'm saying we should just be grateful for the little things that we have because pride is this idea that somehow we're special. We're not. You're just ordinary. What is special is God's love for you. The fact that because you're ordinary and because you, like me, know who you really are and because we know what goes on in our hearts and minds and because we know how far away from God we should be and still He loves us anyway, that's what makes us special. Not the fact that you were born and suck air, but the fact that God in heaven loves you. See, James says, pride... And the boasting of pride is made manifest in what we say. But humility understands that our lives are like a fleeting mist. Now, when you think about a mist, probably think like me, like fog. But actually, the analogy he's using is, do you know way, the way in a cold day, when you walk outside and you breathe in the air, you know, you see the air, the mist comes from your mouth, that vapor? It's like, it's there for like a second and gone. Like, it's not even like a, fo- your life is not like a fog. A fog is like a nationality. A country is a fog. Your life is like that one little breath. (sighs) Gone. Boop. Gone. That's your life. Now, we can kick against that and go, that's not fair. I deserve more. I'm special. My mother told me I'm amazing. I won a trophy once for best attendance. Like, we can complain and kick against this as much as we want, or we can accept the fact that time is a gift, and if we use it wisely... And invest and not waste. 
when our time comes to an end, however long that may be, we can look back not with regret, but with a sense of gratitude. You see, pride speaks as if it can guarantee the future, but it can't. Pride guarantees nothing. It was King Louis VI, King of France, who was called Louis the Wise, who said, where pride and presumption walk before shame and loss. Follow closely. And the reason why he was called Louis the Wise, because every other king uh, who was uh, in his generation were killed because of pride. But he chose the path of humility. Here's the next question. Where are you overestimating your ability and underestimating God's ability in your life? See, the reason why I have faith for the future is because I know my ability. Hello? If, if you want someone to give you an accurate uh, summary of your ability, get married. You'll have a daily reminder of just how not special you are. Right? If you want someone to bring you down to, you know, don't, don't, don't just get married in general. Marry a good person. Because you marry a good person, honest person, they're going to tell you the truth. And you're going to realize our ability is not so much ability. But the reason why we celebrate faith is because when we have a relationship with God, we have access to His ability. And His ability isn't just supernatural in the present. His ability is supernatural for eternity. Prayer allows us to lock into the resource of eternal and supernatural ability. So we have presumption is the first way to waste time. That's driven by pride. Number three, the third and final one is procrastination. Our favorite word, procrastination. I don't know about you, but I spent most of my childhood in school with teachers giving the following report to my parents. Jamie has so much ability if he would only apply himself. Anybody else? Just me? I'm the only stupid one in the room. Okay, fair enough. I accept that. It's like, what does that even mean? Stop procrastinating. Stop wasting time. Stop checking out. Literally, the English dictionary defines procrastination as the act of delaying or postponing something. It's, it's what we call in Ireland the proverbial long finger. We have too many long fingers. It was Charles Dickens, the author, who said, procrastination is the thief of time. It isn't just a, a passive participant in time. It robs, it steals our time. And James said, the arrogance that drives procrastination, he says, is a terrible sin. And again, sin is a heavy word. But the word sin in this instant means to miss the mark. It's got inherent in the idea that God is perfect and God is righteous and God is good and we are not. And we can never through our own acts, our own ability, no matter how religious you are, how good you are, how moral you are, you can never ascend to the level where God is. It's not possible. That's why knowing we could never ascend, God descended by sending His Son, Jesus, who is perfect who was and is blameless and who was sinless to die in our place so that we who will never meet the mark are given the gift of righteousness. It's like someone like me failing every test in school and God sending someone to ace a test and give me all the credit. It's like, wow, 
a straight A. And not only did I not work for it or deserve it or earn it, I never can because it's beyond my ability. Yet somehow, this is my grade. This is my reward. Jesus did that for us. And so in so many ways, we miss the mark. But specifically, James says that sin is not only doing what is wrong. That's just a classic, you know, like, oh, sin, doing the wrong thing. Like, sin is not just doing what is wrong. Sin is also by not doing what is right. I don't mean just morally what is right, but what is right with your time? Again, if, we're, if you're a Christ follower and we're living in light of God's plan and presence and power, the question must therefore become, God, what is your will? What is your desire? What is your advice? What is your wisdom to me in terms of how I should use this time that you gave me as a gift to glorify you and show me how to act upon it? It isn't just doing the wrong thing. It's choosing not to do what is right. Sin is being defined as, in this context, James 4, of knowing what is good, right? I know, some of you are here thinking, oh, I know, I was raised, I read the Bible, I'm a Christ. I know, but I'm not doing. I know, but I'm not doing. I know God has a plan for my life. I know I was, someone prayed for me once and they prophesied of me. I know God has a purpose for my life. I have felt the call of the Holy Spirit. I know God has for me. I'm just choosing not to. In many ways, James says, this is the worst kind of sin. Because what do you do with someone that knows they're, 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 they're falling short of the mark isn't ignorance. It isn't a lack of knowledge stubbornness I mean think about with your own kids how do you deal with that sometimes you've got to discipline stuff out of them it's tough nothing wastes time more than knowing and not doing is that, is that the definition of procrastination I know but I choose not to how many of us I mean this in a general sense will die and our epitaph should be master procrastinator he or she knew, but did not do. If we're not careful, it becomes a moment, becomes a lifetime. We live so much obsessed with tomorrow, the, the, the desire, the drive to achieve and accomplish and to attain things, that we forfeit being, the present. Forfeit the gift that God has given us. We can waste time by procrastinating. We can waste time because we're proud. We can waste time by being presumptuous. So then what, how do you reverse that? What, what practical advice is there? What can we do, James? Help us out, buddy. I mean, okay, we've been challenged enough. Now encourage us. What can we do? And James actually answers because he gives us, he suggests something wiser. He gives a nugget of wisdom. He says, hey, why not live your life? Why not plan in light of God's presence God's power and God's purpose. How do we do that, you ask? Well, here's the answer. It's, this little, and it's, 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 it's encapsulated in this, this brilliant little statement. If the Lord wills it, we shall live too. If the Lord wills it, I shall live too. I shall live to see my dream business accomplished. I shall live to see that house. I shall live to see my great-grandchildren. I shall live to see the plans and purposes of God accomplished in my life. I shall live to see. Now, it isn't, it isn't magic. Okay, here's what, we, here's what gets lost sometimes. It is, the power isn't in the statement. It's like, well, 
I hope to graduate a PhD. Oh, oh, if the Lord wills it. It isn't magic. It's a posture of the heart. It, it, it's living life in light of the fact that God is present. And God has a plan. And God has power. And it's submitting. Here's, we go full circle back to the beginning. It's, it's submitting to the sense of God's lordship in our lives. It's saying, God, I have these desires. I have these dreams. I have these plans. But as Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Do you know why our prayers are powerful prayer? Because in the end, God's will is always done. In the end, his will is always done. So why not get on board with the winning team? And say, Lord, here's what I sense. Here's what I feel. Here's what I want. Nothing wrong with these things. But at the end of the day, whatever your will is, I'm going that direction. Whatever your will is for my life, for my marriage, for my kids, for my business, for my studying, for my schooling, for my morality, for, for, for my social media account, whatever it is, if the Lord wills it, I shall live to see it. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, there are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One, that God knows, and the other, we do not know. It's a very certain statement about uncertainty. So here's the question we close. What is the Lord's will for your time? You know your will for your time. I'm, I'm pretty sure you've got a fairly good grip on that. But what happens like me when all your plans are torn asunder and everything's up in the air because you have no power to change circumstances because only God can do a breakthrough with the Irish passport office right now. Only God. And what happens when God chooses not to? And all of a sudden, you have to reorientate your whole world around what God didn't do. Will you be full of regret and anger? And will you sense that you somehow are some kind of injustice because you deserve something? Or will you find a way to be grateful, knowing that everything we have, even the fact that we have a passport to get on a plane or train or boat and go somewhere, is a privilege that most people never get to experience. What is the Lord's will? And just for your time right now, what's God's will for your time on earth? Like, what is God? Have you ever thought about this? What? James asked the question, what is your life? The answer is, what is God's plan? for my life. I think one of the most powerful things that we have as part of the Christian message is the security and the certainty and the surety of knowing that God has a plan for my life. I don't know a lot of things about many things, but the one thing I know is I am exactly where God wants me to be. There's no other place on planet earth that God wants me to be right now. And even though there's challenges and even though there's all these things, there's a sense of confidence, a sense of certainty that I get from knowing God's plan. I mean, I want that for all of you. I want all of us to live in light of God's presence, God's power, and God's purpose. So as we pray, instead of wasting time, come on, presuming, being prideful, and procrastinating, ask, how am I to live in light of God's plan, presence, and power. And Lord, what is your will for my time? As I finish, let me finish with some words from a poem. It says, it says, Let us deeply consider our own frailty and the shortness and uncertainty of life. 
that we may live for eternity, acquaint ourselves with thee, and be at peace, that we may die in thy favor and live reign with thee eternally. Let's stand, we're going to pray.